0: Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. This week I had a a really fun opportunity to talk to our preschool kids about Jesus' baptism. Uh, We do chapel services with them. Uh, Pastor Bob and I take turns. And I started by asking them to raise their hands if they had been baptized. And guess what? Some of them actually did that. They knew that they were baptized. Already at age four or five, these little ones knew what baptism was and that they had been baptized and so let me ask you all here if you've been baptized go ahead and raise your hand nice okay you can put them down I had you raise your hands because that's what we're going to talk about today baptism and not just about baptism in general but about the baptism of Jesus specifically now I got to say this is a strange event recorded in the Bible right I mean It's weird. Here in the book of Luke, it's essentially just two little verses, and that's it. Actually, it's just one really long sentence. But the imagery is quite intense and rather memorable. Now, last week, we celebrated Epiphany when the wise men came and visited Jesus. And we still had Jesus as a baby or maybe as a toddler. We don't know the exact timing as when the... uh, Wiseman came, but here today, we fast forward 29 years to the baptism of Jesus, an event so momentous that it's actually recorded in all four of the Gospels. And we see this weird, supernatural event take place. Luke tells us, while Jesus was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. How would have you liked to have witnessed that firsthand? I mean, can you imagine? But there are some people in the history of the world that actually got to see this. And if we rewind a little bit in the text, we can get a feeling for the type of people that were there. First, we have a brood of vipers which they weren't actual snakes. It's what uh, John the Baptist referred to uh, when he was talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the the religious elite, if you will. And then we have some rich people, or at least some people that had uh, two tunics, and they were fairly well off because tunics were not cheap, and maybe they had some extra food. We had some tax collectors who were despised Jewish people with cushy government contracts. We had some soldiers who had a reputation of extortion and violence and then we had a bunch of other people who made up the crowds and they all got to watch this firsthand now witnessing this would have been memorable but ever since i heard about the baptism of jesus there was a nagging question that sat right there in the back of my mind and the question is this why why did jesus get baptized It didn't make sense to me since John was preaching a baptism of repentance and Jesus had no sin of which he needed to repent. Why be baptized? This question actually followed me to seminary and I asked one of my professors. My professor said what it says in Scripture, Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. Jesus was responding to the same basic question from John the Baptist and he said, so let it be... So now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Did you catch the answer? It was to fulfill all righteousness. That's the answer we get. And with that, we must be satisfied. But I have a theory. Now, this isn't in Scripture, so feel free to take it with a, with a grain of salt. But I can think of one other possibility or Or better yet, a a byproduct of Jesus' baptism. And it was to show who he had really come to save. Think about this. The folks who were getting baptized by John, they were were not the ruling class. They were not the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the religious elite, if you will. But they were the sinners, the tax collectors, the soldiers, the despised, the rejected. These are the people who would have witnessed Jesus being baptized just like one of them. Not some perfect guy standing off at a distance watching, judging, claiming he didn't need it. Now granted, he he didn't need it. But there certainly was no doubt who Jesus threw his lot in with that day. And it was not the religious elite. It was the broken people, the losers, the the have-nots. The ones who knew they had no chance of getting into heaven based on, on what they've done or how they've lived their life. They were all very aware of their sin and they were going to John to hopefully get a a redo, a a second chance, a a new beginning. And that's exactly who Jesus is pursuing. And so Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan River and something amazing happens. When the heavens open, we have a clear picture of our uh, our Trinitarian God, our three-in-one God present and active, visibly, and audibly interacting with his creation. And this is at the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. This event is really the the kickoff point to the rest of his three-year ministry of traveling and preaching, performing miracles, dying, and rising again. And what's really cool here is that we have our Trinitarian God at the very end of Jesus' ministry, on earth as well. And it's recorded in the end of the book of Matthew. Here we have our Trinitarian God, our three-in-one God, present again. And it nicely bookends the ministry of Jesus. And notice what Jesus says at the end of his ministry. He's talking to his disciples just before he ascends into heaven to sit at the right hand of God. And he says to his disciples in Matthew 28, Go! Go! therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I don't think it's an accident that we have our triune God and baptism connected twice. And those baptized in the name of the triune God have God the Father as their Father. And they are connected to and receive the benefits of the Son's redeeming act. They also receive the life-giving and life-sustaining power of the Holy Spirit. The large catechism says baptism is no human plaything, but it's instituted by God himself. Not only did Jesus give us the directive, he gave us the example in his own baptism by John. And through our baptisms, through the water connected to the word, we receive faith. We are given promises from God that we can take to the bank, and we are connected to Jesus' death and resurrection through baptism and our, are and our ones with whom God is well pleased. We, through Jesus, are God's beloved, which are words that echo what Jesus was told at his very own baptism. I mentioned earlier how, how impactful it might have been to, to witness hearing the voice from heaven say, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Well, that reminds me of one other time we hear in Scripture a voice from heaven, often referred to as the Transfiguration. We have Jesus on a mountain talking with Moses and Elijah while a few of his disciples watch. And this time the voice says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Have you ever noticed that this world that we live in is so loud? And it can be hard to hear what Jesus has to say, let alone let it sink in. Unlike most of human history, we have access to the very Word of God and we have the ability to actually read it. We can carry it around with us and view it instantly at the tip of our fingertips. We have the tools we need to hear what God has to say into our lives but sadly we don't capitalize on that opportunity like we should do we? Instead we listen to all the other voices clamoring for our attention so let me ask who are you listening to the talking heads on tv sadly the days of walter cronkite are over for me and for my short life all news that i've consumed has been commercialized all news stories have been manufactured or written, or at a minimum, selected in hopes of generating the most amount of revenue for these for-profit news companies. That's who you give the privilege to, to speak truth into your lives. Have you noticed, as they clamor for our attention, they've gotten louder and louder. But you don't need to watch TV or these talking heads to be distracted from the truth. What about that little voice that causes you to to overthink a situation? What about those half-truths you start to believe? Well, I'm here to remind you that those thoughts are not from God. And if they're not from God, there's only one other source it could be from. Satan. He is the father of all lies. And he has been practicing his craft for a very long time. He's good at his job, which is to try to pull you away from your faith and your trust in God. And it's likely he'll try to convince you to trust in yourself instead or a talking head on TV or some other source of truth in your lives just as long as it's not trusting in God. And the longer we ignore God and His Word, the easier it is to listen to that liar, the devil. And he'll have us starting to believe all, all sorts of things. His one and only goal is to get you to believe that you are not God's beloved son or daughter with whom He is well pleased. That Jesus, on account of His loving sacrifice, paid the price for all of your sin, and that we have a place in His kingdom... And work to do on God's behalf. The truth is Jesus calls his followers to go and make disciples. To baptize and to teach. And he even gives us a church, a body of believers to belong to so we can do that work together. But that liar, the devil, would have you believe that's not the case. Now I've given this some thought and... I've been able to identify four lies that we believe when it comes to church involvement. Now, there's probably more than four, but I've been able to to name four of them here. And the first lie that we believe when it comes to church involvement is I'm not good enough, they should find somebody better. Week after week, I stand up here and I listen to you all say that you are poor, miserable sinners, and I'm starting to believe you. But God calls us poor, miserable sinners to be the ones to share his good news. In fact, it's because we are poor, miserable sinners, fallen people, that we can speak honestly about what God has done for us. And you're right, not everyone has the same gifts. And for some, it may be easier than for others. But God has created all of us with certain things that we're good at, Some skills or some abilities, some passion or interest. And God uses all of that to build up his church here on earth using exactly those gifts. Now the second lie that we like to believe is, I don't have time for that. The truth is, when somebody says that is, I'm not willing to make time for that. The ministry or church activity is not a priority for me. Trust me, I get it. I get how busy people are in this American culture. I know how hard people work to, to get ahead or simply just to keep up. We program and schedule things, jumping from one thing to another, getting as much done as we can before we lay our heads down on our pillows just to have the alarm clock wake us up that next morning. But to that... God would have us hear what it says in Matthew 6, 33, but uh, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I would recommend if God is not at the top of your priority list that you give that some serious thought as to how that liar, the devil, might be using that against you and your spiritual walk. The third lie I'm tired. I've put in my time. It's time for somebody else to step up and do it. Hear this truth Satan wants you to believe that you no longer have anything left to offer. I'm going to say that again. Satan wants you to believe that you no longer have anything left to offer. Often these words I'm tired. I've put in my time are spoken by the more mature members of the church. And sadly, it's the younger and the middle-aged people who are to blame for this. And it's not because they're not stepping up and taking over your roles. It's because they've allowed you older folks to buy into the lie that elderly people are worthless. Our American culture is guilty of pushing this in covert ways. Let's, let's encourage all the old people to, lo- to move to Florida and Arizona. Have them leave us alone, right? I have a buddy from seminary who's down in Arizona. His congregation triples in size over the winter. Or let's put them all in senior housing and, and we'll just visit them when it's convenient for us. The fourth commandment tells us to honor our fathers and our mothers. Notice it doesn't just say that when you're growing up. This is a lifelong commandment. And we as a society, and we even as a church, are doing a horrible job of this. Now sure, there are little little pockets of honor here and there. Finally, Vietnam War veterans are getting recognition for their service, and Perhaps you've been able to attend a 50-year wedding anniversary, right? There's these little pockets. But on the whole, there is little to no opportunity for the elderly to share their wisdom and to have it appreciated by those younger than them. And because of that, because we don't properly honor our fathers and our mothers, they will eventually wonder why it is they're doing all this work. And when they ask that question, they will also likely think that no one cares or that they're being taken for granted. And so they stop. And maybe because of that, a certain ministry that was happening dies. And at first, there might be a little guilt. There might be a short mourning period for this volunteer who has given up on a certain ministry but then they'll get on with life. They'll be able to distract themselves with a new hobby or a new trip or or having visitors. They will get a new sense of fulfillment, and they will get on with their life eventually, and they might even stop thinking about that activity altogether. They might even stop attending church or, or drastically cut back. And eventually, as they're lying in a hospital bed, One of their kids will ask, since it's obvious their parent won't be with them much longer, they'll ask about their final wishes. And one question will be, where do you want your funeral to be, mom or dad? And they will respond, well, I guess at South Shore Trinity, I used to be so active there. And the son or daughter will ask, huh, so what happened? And this is where the fourth lie that Satan wants us to believe will be spoken and that parent laying on the hospital bed will say they no longer needed me well the truth is we do need you we need you now more than ever and all these people in our community who have yet to hear and believe in Jesus need you more than ever and all the family members who have children and grandchildren who have fallen away from the faith need you more than ever. Because we are baptized, because we don the uniform of the enemy of Satan, he will do all that he can to drive a wedge between us and God. And he will do this in covert and subtle ways, and and he will do this with the lies that he wants us to believe about our relationship with God, our church, our fellow believers, and even our family members. He will try to isolate us and destroy our connections to God and to his word and the words of love that are spoken into our lives. So let's not let Satan do that. Instead, let's listen to God speak into our lives. Let's remember our baptisms. Let us remember that God has called us by the gospel that he's chosen us from before time began and that he sent his son to die for us on that cross to forgive our sins let us remember how God promises to give us eternal life when he calls us home but before we're called home with him forever let us remember that God's put us here on earth to be citizens of his kingdom and to share this good news of life and salvation with the world that needs to hear it So that other people, in their own baptisms, can hear what God has to say to them. That you are my beloved. And that because of Jesus, with you, I am well pleased. Amen. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.